of course it's a waste of time. Of course, uh, you could be doing something more productive. We've been trained from the earliest of ages, always, that the person who's not doing is the person who distinctly is not achieving, perhaps a loser, and the person who is going, 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 doing, right to the brink of exhaustion and burnout, is the champion. It's not really nourishing thinking, and it's not true. You're listening to the Happy Doc Student Podcast, a podcast dedicated to providing clarity to the often mysterious doctoral process. Do you feel like you're losing your mind? Let me and my guests show you how to put more joy in your journey and graduate with your sanity, health, and relationships intact. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Frederick, and this is Episode 12. This podcast was recorded as a YouTube, and you can view all 50 beautiful minutes there. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. But for the sake of this audience, I edited the truly captivating interview into two shorter episodes. All right, boy, are you in for a treat, because today I welcome the man often referred to as the velvet voice of stillness. David G. is a globally recognized mind-body health and wellness expert, mindful performance trainer, meditation teacher, and author. As the most prolific creator of guided meditations in the world, his work has touched literally millions of people's lives, mine included. He has a passion for working with those in high-pressure, high-stress situations, and so what better person to come talk to us about the transformative nature of a daily meditation practice. David G., I am truly humbled and honored to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here and to share some of these tools and tips and techniques to help all of us connect to that stillness and silence that rests within so we can make better decisions in our lives. So, David G., when I was in graduate school, I did not meditate. And if someone had suggested that I do such a thing, I am fairly confident I would have said not only that I did not have the time, but that I thought it was a waste of time. So my audience is full of analytical thinkers and research junkies. So why don't we just start with a little bit of the science behind a meditation practice? Of course, it's a waste of time. Of course, uh, you could be doing something more productive. We've been trained from the earliest of ages, especially if you're in a graduate program, you're a high achiever, probably a little bit of a control freak as well. And so if we've been taught always that the person who's not doing is the person who distinctly is not achieving, perhaps a loser, and the person who's going, 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 doing right to the brink of exhaustion and burnout is the champion. It's not really nourishing thinking, and it's not true. And so I would love to share with you some of the science so we can own the fact that this tool that people have been practicing for literally for thousands of years can help you in a physical sense, in a mental sense, in an emotional sense, and if you care, in a spiritual sense. So let's dive into probably the landmark study What I do is I read white papers and research reports, but I try to distill it down into something that we could care about 
So this was a 2012 study at the University of Massachusetts, Mass General, with Harvard Medical Center. And once it started going on, it was so exciting that even Yale dove in to be a part of this landmark study. And it was the first study that demonstrated scientifically that meditation can change the physical structure of your brain. Before that, it was just a guess, and people were saying, sure, it's good for you. But this proved it. It wasn't a giant study. There were only 16 test subjects. But these 16 test subjects, amazingly, agreed to take MRIs of their brain before, during, and after. It was an eight-week study, 56 days. And they were instructed to meditate just once a day for 30 minutes, simply watching their breath. The end of these 56 days, it was unanimous. All 16 test subjects demonstrated an increase in their gray matter of their hippocampus, the part of our brain responsible for learning, memory, spatial orientation, hand-eye coordination, all of them experienced at least a 5% increase in the gray matter of the hippocampus. They also, all of them, experienced a shrinkage of more than 5% in their amygdala, the part of the brain responsible for stress, anger, anxiety, fear. That was 2012. Once we knew that like, oh, I guess meditating can actually change the physical structure of the brain, money started pouring into other academic institutions and medical centers for research on meditation. Okay, let's just do a quick pause and let this sink in. There is evidence out there that a simple meditation practice can change your brain in exactly the way you would want it changed when you're in a doctoral program, right? Increasing the areas you need more of and shrinking areas that can hold you back. Now, if that doesn't get you thinking about a meditation practice, keep on listening because there's more to come here. Dr. Richard J. Davidson at the University of Wisconsin in Madison has done extensive work on consciousness and the brain. So let me share a very, very cool, if not eerie, study that he did. It was a study that was done in Chicago. It was an eight-year study. There were 25,000 people, so not 16, but 25,000 people who participated. And this was a stress study. And they asked these people just two questions. One, do you have a lot of stress or a little stress? And two, do you think it's harmful to you or do you think it's not harmful to you? And this study changed our perception of stress totally because it suddenly revealed that stress is in the eye of the beholder. So here's how they tracked the results of this study. They just used death records. They never met these people ever again. They asked them these two questions, and then they tracked their lives over eight years. The people who said, I have a lot of stress, and oh, by the way, it's very, very harmful. They had a 43% higher mortality rate than the rest of the group. The group that said, yeah, I have a lot of stress, but it's not going to kill me. They had the lowest mortality rate. Okay, so let's pause again, because this is a profound finding. This idea that stress is in the eye of the beholder. So I'm going to invite all the listeners to take just a moment here and get curious about your story around stress. What do you believe? I remember being in graduate school, wondering if the amount of stress that I was under 
hang on if this is kind of your thought process, if this is the narrative that you have about stress, because in these two episodes, you're going to hear about both the problem and a simple solution. In this next section, David G. defines stress. And as he does, be reflective. Think about your life, your graduate program, and how whether or not what he's saying resonates with you. My definition is how you respond when your needs are not met. It's just that simple. And that happens how many times a day do we think that happens? (laughs) Maybe 20 times a day. And so we're all experiencing our needs not being met in so many different areas, especially with this global pandemic occurring. Oh, plus your studies. Oh, by the way, your relationships. Oh, by the way, the social context happening in our world, the, the racial inequity that we're really being exposed to at a much higher level. So we're becoming more aware of that. Oh, by the way, politics, we can go on and on with a list of ways that our needs are not met. But I like to distill this down to four basic needs. I call them the needs of the heart. And when the needs of the heart are not met and they're not met on a consistent basis, we're experiencing that same, that same type of result. The four needs of the heart are attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. We all need attention. We all need to be seen. It's a form of our validation. We are craving attention. And if you're a student, I don't care what level you are, you are craving for that professor to acknowledge you, to like see you, just to make sure that you're there. A little deeper than attention is affection. Everybody needs it. It's sort of like attention with a little bit of kindness. So we want to be seen and then have someone smile at us. We want to be seen and have someone pat us on the back. We want to be seen and have someone perhaps hug us. We want affection in our lives from the most basic forms to the most intimate forms. The next level after attention and affection is appreciation. Everybody needs to be seen and acknowledged, recognized for their contribution. We all need it. We crave it. And then one step further is acceptance. We all want to feel like we belong to something. This could be your favorite musical group. This could be your religion. This could be your school. There's a certain pride you have for your bubble. Whatever that bubble is, you're like, yep, I'm one of them. You know, I voted for this person. I eat this kind of food. If you would put a bumper sticker on the back of your car about something, that's something you want to be accepted to. And we crave it. So attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. Think about how often these needs are not being met. And when these needs are not being met, we experience stress. Okay, I want to interject here again. Universally, many people's needs, and we're talking about the needs for attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance are simply not being met. But this is even more true in a grad program. And we know this is not a good thing for any human body. Now we're familiar with the concept of fight flight. Fight flight is this self-preservation mechanism that's been woven into our DNA since beings first walked on the planet. So let's go back 10,000 years. You're walking through the jungle and you hear a twig snap or you hear the hiss of a saber-toothed tiger or something like that. And here's how we're wired. It's our autonomic nervous system that's running the whole show. And in less than five seconds, it's going to kick us into the self-preservation mechanism where we will either fight the threat or run away from it. So the first thing that happens is you start perspiring. Anytime we sense a threat to the physiology, 
the first thing we do is start with this file. We've all been driving and someone cut us off. And in that moment, we were like, ah. and the first thing we do is perspire. Why do we do that? Because our autonomic nervous system says, hey, there's a threat to the physiology. You're going to either fight or run away from this thing. We need to uh, start sweating because we know you're going to overheat in that process. And that's how we cool down. The next thing you start to do is breathe more rapidly and more shallowly. That's to get the blood flowing. Blood flowing is a really core and critical aspect. And this teaches us how connected our breath is to our heart rate. So you start breathing more shallowly and more rapidly. The blood that's in your torso and your brain actually leaves there, moves to your legs and to your arms, to your extremities. So you can really either run away or fight. And then this very, very cool thing happens. The autonomic nervous system says, what's essential here to save our life? Um, it's definitely not your sex hormones. We don't need to be thinking about sexual reproduction right now. So let's shut down your entire reproductive system. Then it says, uh, what else is going on here? Oh, cellular development, hard nails, lustrous hair, you know, beautiful skin. Yeah, we don't need to be thinking about that either. Who needs to be thinking about cellular development right now? So let's shut down your growth hormone. And then your autonomic nervous system says, oh, you know that germ fighting thing known as your immune system? Uh, you could be dead in, in like three minutes. So we don't need to be fighting germs right now. Let's shut down your immune system. Your digestive system shuts down. Critical thinking shuts down. And your body puts all its attention on surging adrenaline, cortisol, and glucagon into your body. Glucagon is like eating five Snickers bars at once. It's something as insane as that. And now you're pretty much set up. You've shut down everything that's non-essential. You've surged all this amped up chemical and hormone into you. And, oh, but wait, there's one more thing. Your autonomic nervous system figures out, you know what? You could get cut. Back in the day when you were running from a threat or fighting a threat, a mortal threat, you often got cut by the nails of a saber-toothed tiger or by something in the woods while you were running away from it. So we actually begin to start clotting our blood. Platelets, the hard parts of the blood that flow through the plasma become plump and sticky in advance of you being cut. All this in about three and a half to five seconds. All this stuff in under five seconds. And now you're ready to either fight the threat or run away. Fast forward to this year, not a lot of saber-toothed tigers out there, and we're not experiencing mortal threats on a constant basis. But when we experience a threat or sense a threat, not to the physiology, but to our ego, our sense of self, our sense of self-worth, which is something we think we own, we respond the exact same way. What do we think we own? Pretty much everything, right? I own my diet. I own my physical exercise. I own my school that I go to. I own my path of study. I own my religion. I own my belief systems. You even think you own the lane that you're driving in, right? We think we own the 20 feet in front of us, the 20 feet behind us, and certainly our lane. And when someone sort of like drifts into our lane, they're invading our personal space. They're invading the thing that we think we own. So suddenly we start to realize anytime anything we think we own, political beliefs, your social beliefs, your identity beliefs, we can go on and on and on, your nationalistic beliefs, whatever they are. Anytime they're threatened, we respond. It's called emotional fight flight, also referred to as the ego response, also referred to as the reactive response. 
So you figure 20 times a day when our needs are not being met, certainly attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. Suddenly, all that same chemical and hormonal aspect flows through us. So we are actually damaging ourselves every time we experience stress if we think it's going to harm us. You have given us so much to unpack here. Wow. Where do I start? A threat is a threat is a threat, right? Whether it's a saber-toothed tiger or your paper coming back for the 100th revision. Correct. We are under a state of stress. Right. That does not serve us. And responding chemically and hormonally the same way. Maybe not at that level of intensity where we're out of breath, but we could be, right? Someone hands you back your paper and they go, really? You thought that was going to pass? Everything that's going on, if you were in the most dire mortal threat, the exact same chemical and hormonal aspects are happening to you. How many times do you think you can suppress your immune system before you get diagnosed with an immunodeficiency? How many times do you think you can surge sugar into your body before you're diagnosed with a sugar issue? How many times do you think you can make your platelets plump and sticky before you're diagnosed with some type of cardiac issue? So we suddenly realize de-stressifying could be one of the most important and greatest essential things that we could ever put our attention on. Absolutely. As you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, this could be maybe a scary conversation that people are listening in on as they're realizing as they're partaking in this program that's five, six, seven plus years constantly under a state of stress and going, oh no, (laughs) what am I doing to myself? You came from a high stress life. Yes, I did. You know, it's funny. I began my meditation journey when I was an undergraduate and it was an experimental Asian studies class. We learned Zen meditation and there were 12 of us. We sat in in a circle. Our Zen master stood in the corner And we were instructed during the meditation, if we had a thought, to raise our hand. In his hand, he carried an 18-inch bamboo stick known as a keisaku. And he would come over and thwack us on the back every time we had a thought. So I only lasted in that school of meditation a couple of weeks. And I dabbled sometimes for, for years, sometimes for days or weeks, everything from candle gazing to mantra to tantra to walking meditations, moving meditations, singing meditations, chocolate tasting meditations. But then I got more deeply involved in the corporate world. And I got involved in the world of finance and Wall Street and mergers and acquisitions. And like that, my meditation practice was gone. And what came to replace it? Lack of balance and and, and an emptiness inside. And uh, it wasn't until like a crisis moment, which I'm hoping no one here has to go through, you know, go to school on, on my crisis moment, where suddenly I was like, that's it, I'm done, I'm fried, I'm empty, I'm empty inside. And then I went off on my own little eat, pray, love journey to try to reconnect with meditation and the practice. And I work with a lot of people who are in super, super high stress, high pressure jobs, and you know we're, we're all the same in this context. We're all experiencing these flickers of fight flight in an emotional way throughout the course of the day. And here's an important thing. When those chemicals and hormones surge into you, ideally to preserve you, but of course, it's not preserving you if you've just got, you know, it's got a paper that's not resonating with your professor. In that moment, when, when all that stuff is, is coming into us, 
there's no off switch. It just comes in and then maybe dissipates. It can go as long as 18 hours. So we would say if it exists in the body just for more than a few minutes here to spark you into a certain direction, then that's chronic stress. And so if you're like living like that day after day after day after day, it's going to take you down. These We call these the seeds of illness that happen to us. It's going to take you down emotionally and it's going to make you force you to make decisions out of fear or desperation. And that's the problem. We should make decisions, all of our choices, from a, from a space of, of clarity and deeper understanding. And so the flip side of this is meditation. Meditation is the antidote to stress. The meditative state that we experience just by meditating a little bit here and there is known as the restful awareness or restful alertness biological state. It's like the opposite of fight flight. When we're in that state, we're not perspiring. Our threshold for perspiration actually gets raised up. Uh, we're not breathing shallowly and rapidly. We're breathing more deeply and more slowly. Our blood flow slows down. Our blood pressure lessens. Think about this. Our growth hormone, our sex hormone, our immune system all become elevated and adrenaline, cortisol, and glucagon get suppressed. And instead of the hard parts of our blood beginning plump and sticky, they become more fluid and flow through us more easily. So give it a choice. How do you want to live your life? It's really that simple. You want to live your life from in that space with all that coming into us? Or do you want to live as sort of like waiting for the next crisis to unfold and see how you'll respond to it? And meditation can really help you have fewer crises in your life. It's just that simple. You know, it really is that simple. And sometimes I think people shy away from things that are so simple. Can it really just be, David G., that if I start this meditation practice, right? So I'm sure you hear lots of excuses. I know when I talk to doctoral students and faculty about meditation, I hear things like, I think I would be terrible at it because my mind is always going and I don't see myself sitting there for 30 minutes and who's got that kind of time so what do you suggest for someone who's listening in and they're thinking, oh my goodness, I need to give this a try. Where do I start? All right, guys, I know you can't wait to hear David G's answer. So head on over to episode 13 and I'll see you there. I'd like to invite you to visit my website, expandyourhappy.com, where you can download a document I wrote called The Doctoral Journey, 12 Things You Need to Know That They Probably Won't Tell You. And when you download that article, you'll be invited to participate in a seven-day email adventure that will help you kickstart your happy doctoral journey. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. And until the next episode, I'm sending you more joy for your journey. One more thing, just a quick reminder that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. 